millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 151, Bardas Sclerose. Last time, John Zimisciza's unexpected demise left the palace in the hands of Basil Le Cabinos. The powerful eunuch chose to keep the military establishment at arm's length and allow his great-nephew Basil to become senior emperor. But at just 18, and with no experience of government, it would take Basil II a while to learn the ropes. It was left then to Le Cabinos to handle the fallout from his decision. As he feared might happen, Zimisciza's lieutenant, Bardas Skliros, declared himself emperor and marched on the capital. However, stalemate set in after two years of fighting. Skliros controlled Anatolia, while the palace held the west and the sea. So Le Capinos turned to the only man who could disrupt the loyalties of Skliros's army, a man who'd already been exiled for rebelling against the palace, Bardas Phocas. Bardas Phocas was the eldest son of Leo Phocas, the now blind brother of Nicephorus. We don't know when Bardas was born, but our best guess is that he was now in his mid-thirties, so much younger than Skliros, who was in his mid-fifties. All the histories call Bardas a tough man and a competent general, which is no surprise. Some sources suggest he wasn't as clever a commander as Skliros, but it's hard to make such estimations. We first saw him in the narrative in 966, when he was serving as the Dukes of Chaldea. That's the command in the very north of Anatolia, bordering the world of the Caucasus, which will prove significant. With his father and brother in exile, it was left to him to raise the standard of revolt after Nicephorus's murder. However, he'd already been removed from office by Zemisces and was therefore unable to gather a strong enough army to threaten the capital. His rebellion was easily terminated by Skliros himself back in 970. Since then, Phocas had been in comfortable exile on the island of Chios, but now he was back. 
he'd grown up in an eastern army that was very much his family's domain. Their relatives and associates were in every high position, and they reaped the rewards for two decades before Nicephorus's death. Bardas was eager to return to that state, as were many men who'd lost favour since Zemiskis took power. After swearing oaths of loyalty to the emperor, Phocas was given some western troops and snuck across the Bosphorus. He made a series of night marches to make sure his army would not be intercepted and headed for his home territory of Cappadocia. He set up his headquarters at Caesarea and sent out word to the Phocas network calling for support. First to respond was Eustathios Maleinos, the long-time family ally. The second, amazingly, was Michael Vortzis, one of the men who had murdered Nicephorus. Nothing speaks more clearly to the strange, forgiving culture of the Byzantine ruling class, but then again, Phocas needed his soldiers. Scleros moved east, keen to crush his enemy before the pro-Phocas officers in his camp could switch sides. Phocas too was on the march, hoping to outmaneuver his rival. The two sides met in late June near Amorium, and Scleros was once again victorious. Presumably, he still had the larger army. Credit to Phocas, though, he worked hard to create an organized withdrawal and prevent a rout. The sources aren't clear on what happened next. It's possible that the two sides fought a running battle as Phocas retreated east. Once he'd passed the Harlis River, he made his way north through the Armenia Khan and into the mountains. This was beyond Scleros's reach and into the territory that Phocas had governed a decade earlier. Once there, he sought out the Prince of Upper Tau, the Bagratuni ruler David. As we head into the Georgian world, my pronunciation is going to become ever more speculative. Apologies in advance. I could call him David, but think David helps differentiate him. I also won't attempt to discuss the history and politics of this region now, as it will make things too complicated. But you can see Tau on the map in northern Armenia, just south of the Caucasus. Despite the nobility being intermarried with the Armenians, the people of this area were not. Today we would identify them as Georgian, though the Byzantines called them Iberians. David was the kind of ruler that the Romans had been trying to woo for the past century. His lands bordered the outposts of the empire at Theodosiopolis and Trebizond. And although the Muslim threat had largely receded in this region, diplomacy continued. There were always forts and passes to be garrisoned and disputed, trading rights to be agreed on, and so forth. During Bardas's time as the Dukes of Chaldea, he and David had been on good terms. This personal relationship was vital for Phocas as he looked for somewhere to hide his beaten army away from the clutches of Scleros. 
David was happy to offer them a home for the winter of 978, but he was less sure about offering military assistance, which was, of course, Focus's next question. The general was aided in this quest by the palace. Once Le Capinos heard what had happened, he went to work through some interesting diplomatic channels to secure David's participation in the war. You see, some high-ranking men of Tao had retired to the monastic life and settled down on Mount Athos. This was the mountain near Thessalonica, which was establishing itself as an important monastic centre. You know about this because Athanasios, the spiritual patron of Nicephorus Phocus, was given special grants to establish a foundation there. The future saint was still alive and remained an ally of the Phocus family, which was very handy for the imperial side, as he was able to press the men of Tau back into the secular world. A former nobleman and army officer named Tornik threw off his monastic cloak and headed for Constantinople. After wringing some tremendous concessions from Le Capinos, he was ferried back to his homeland where David entrusted him with several thousand cavalrymen. We talk a lot about the sophistication of the Byzantine tax and military system, but it's good to remember that in the medieval world, these personal ties could sometimes be more vital. Historian Mark Witto believes that the Focads had Iberian kinsmen, and that's what produced this alliance. Just as the Scleros Corcuas camp had strong Armenian connections. The men of Tau had watched passively as the civil war unfolded. It was only when Phocas himself became directly involved that they agreed to take part. Armed with fresh cavalry then, Phocas began the trek down to the plateau in spring 979. As you know, cavalry can make or break a whole campaign, and so it proved here. Despite his impressive list of victories, Scleros was no closer to becoming emperor than he had been three years earlier. The palace were able to keep sending armies against him, each one dragging him further and further from the Bosphorus. His weary troops waited for Phocas in Charsianum. The two sides met in late March. Tornik's cavalry carried the day, and Scleros's army dispersed. As had happened at the end of Thomas the Slav's revolt, some of the rebels captured fortresses in western Anatolia and refused to give them up until the government provided them with an amnesty. Meanwhile, Scleros, his family and bodyguard, raced for the border. The general sought refuge in the home of his ally, Abu Taklib, in Martyropolis. We'll come back to him in a moment. So, the civil war was over. The emperor and Le Capinos were obviously pleased to have seen off this challenge to the regime. But in a way, they hadn't solved the fundamental problem which the war represented. Scleros rebelled because he knew that most of the army would support him, 
and not just because of his personal credentials, but because they would support one of their own being in charge of the empire. This had been the way of things for two decades, and they wanted to see it continue. The government's way of defeating Skleros was not to find an alternative to the Eastern Army's influence, but, in a sense, to transfer the civil conflict to within the army. Bardas' focus wasn't sent out as an imperial agent to complete this one task. Part of the deal was that he was to be restored to his uncle's old position, domestic of the Scoli. Now that the civil war was over, Phocas was the master of the eastern armies. He would be the one appointing all the officers and leading them into battle. The point of view of the army hadn't really changed. They still felt that a strong general should be in charge of these patronage networks. And now, the man in position was the nephew of the great Nicephorus, a man who some of them had already hailed as emperor eight years earlier. I'll quote Antony Cordelis verbatim. The configuration of power in Romania reverted to what it had been 20 years earlier under Romanus II, a largely uninvolved young emperor, a eunuch handler, and a focused general in the East. Precedent suggested that this was a prelude for another focus on the throne. Bardas' focus would not rebel for another nine years, but the tension that this situation created would percolate throughout the next decade. Also reaping rewards in the aftermath of the war were the Iberians. In exchange for his assistance, David of Tau was given control of large amounts of imperial territory along the border, including the governorship of Theodosiopolis for life. We assume that most of the land handed over was on a similar deal, i.e. you can collect the revenues for the rest of your days, but once you die, the rights will revert to the empire. Either way, this was a significant donation and underlines what I explained during our mini-tour. Theodosiopolis was one of the major acquisitions the Romans had made at the expense of the Arabs, but it was not a military outpost that the government needed to constantly garrison. They were happy to let David of Tau provide for its defence for the foreseeable future. And then there was Tornik, who returned to Mount Athos and the monastic life, a life of renouncing worldly goods. For his role in the war, he was given the court rank of Curo Pilates, which brought with it a huge annual salary. He also took home an additional £1,200 of gold, a land grant to establish a new monastery on the mountain, and a collection of precious relics. These gifts helped establish the Iveron Monastery, which still stands today. I've put pictures on the website. Before we can catch up with Skleros, currently looking anxiously over his shoulder as he traverses the mountains, we need to take a brief aside to catch you up on events in the former caliphate. 
It's a strange coincidence, but at the same time as the Roman Civil War, there were also major changes to the balance of power in Syria. We need to know about this shift in order to understand what happens next in our story, even if this change to the balance of power will be restored to the situation I described in our mini end of the century soon. As you know, Baghdad had become virtually ungovernable over the course of the past century. That's why, even though the powerful Buyids now controlled it, you don't hear me talking up the possibility of an Abbasid comeback. During our mini-tour, I talked exclusively about the Egyptian Fatimids because they are the real threat to Byzantium. However, Baghdad's sheer size and history meant that men still dreamt of restoring the original caliphate, and the Buyids certainly felt threatened by the rise of the Shiite Fatimids. So while the Romans were fighting each other, Baghdad was given a strong new governor in the form of Adud Dud Daula. He was able to temporarily whip the place into shape and start preparing the ground for Baghdad to once again become master of the Levant. The first thing he needed to do was bring the Emirate of Mosul to heel. This was, of course, Abu Taklib's territory, the ally of Bardas Sclerose. In 978 and 79, the forces of Baghdad methodically defeated the emir, capturing both Mosul and Martyropolis. Abu Taklib appealed to Sclerose for help, but there was nothing the general could do while he was engaged with Fokas. So Abu Taklib, the nephew of Saif fled to Palestine, where he met his end. All of which left Sclerous in a difficult position. He had nowhere else to go after his defeat. But he knew that it would not be his ally waiting for him. He entered Martyropolis with trepidation, hoping for a kind reception. Adut Tola was perfectly kind to the Byzantine general. His agents were more than happy to house and feed the 300 or so members of Sclerosis' retinue. And then they escorted them to Baghdad. As far as the Buyid governor was concerned, Scleros was an ideal pawn. Having captured the Emirate of Mosul, the next step in Adut's plan was to take control of Aleppo. The city was both wealthy and strategically vital. If he could annex it, then he would have secured the whole of northern Syria and Mesopotamia, sealing them off from Fatimid incursions. Now, this plan might not have occurred to Adud if Aleppo had remained under the leadership of Karguya, the man who agreed the protectorate treaty with the Byzantines. However, during the civil war, he too was overthrown by his enemies. The man now in charge of Aleppo was the son of Saif ad-Dawla, Saad ad-Dawla. Saad ad-Dawla was obviously keen to throw off Roman influence and was happy to seek Baghdad's aid in doing so. So, here we are. As the dust settled on the Byzantine civil war, news arrived that Sclerose was now residing 
on the Tigris River. Adud Tadtola made it clear that he was willing to swap the usurper for control of Aleppo. Otherwise, who knows? The rebel general might find himself marching back into Romania at the head of an Arab army. Your choice. Things were not quite so simple, though. Baghdad did not actually have the forces available to occupy Aleppo. That's why they needed to dangle the threat of Sclerus. Whereas the Romans could easily send out the garrison of Antioch to make the short march to Aleppo to demand that the city honour its treaty. This diplomatic standoff would rumble on for the next few years, and thank goodness in a way that it did. Because if we were left with just the Byzantine histories, we would pretty much skip forward nine years until the next round of civil war. Fortunately, a fascinating document survives, which tells us much about political life inside the empire during the early 980s. It's the account of an embassy written by a Buyid envoy named Ibn Shahram. In it, he describes in detail his trip across Anatolia and into the palace during 981 and 82. I'm going to give you all the details, because it's essentially our only source for the political dynamics which lead to the next round of civil conflict. To put this in context, the last battle between Phocas and Sclerus was fought in March 979. It's now the summer of 981, when Ibn Shahram crosses the mountains and begins his journey to Constantinople. We know almost nothing about what's happened inside the empire since the end of the war. The deal which Baghdad was proposing was to swap Sclerus for Aleppo plus a bunch of border fortresses taken over the years by the Byzantines and the return of all Muslim prisoners still being held. Oh, and Sclerus was to be pardoned, by the way. It was quite the good deal for the Arabs, but then they knew that the Romans didn't want this usurper hanging around off stage. Presumably, the Byzantines also took seriously the possibility that Baghdad might be recovering its strength. As Ibn Shahram made his way along the imperial post road, he was greeted by Bardas Focus himself. The domestic inspected the party and made it clear that he didn't feel the treaty was necessary, i.e. my army can continue to enforce the deal with Aleppo and hold all our fortresses. He was very open in his comments, making it clear that he strongly disagreed with the emperor's policy, almost to the point of suggesting rebellion. Ibn Shahram moved on to the capital, where Le Capinos conducted negotiations. The Emperor Basil was around for some meetings, but the eunuch made it clear that he spoke for both of them, and behaved very much like he was in charge of affairs. Also present at these discussions was the blind Leo Focus amazingly restored to palace life and clearly representing his son's interests at court. 
Leo joined Le Capinos in disputing every point in the treaty, making it clear that the Romans were not happy with the concessions they were being asked to give. As with most ambassadors' visits to the capital, Ibn Shahram was lodged in a palace for months on end as the negotiations continued. In November, Bardas Focus marched on Aleppo and induced it to pay its tribute for the year. The chests of coins were transported back to the capital where they were shown to Ibn Shahram, proof that the Byzantines could maintain their protectorate and therefore that Baghdad ought to drop some of its demands. Ibn Shahram, however, suspected that the Emperor Basil, now in his early twenties, was keener on peace than his advisers. So he arranged to meet with him privately during one of Le Capinos's frequent bouts of ill health. Rather like Focus, Basil was candid about his feelings. He made it clear that he couldn't easily stand against the wishes of Le Capinos, Leo, and the others, and that he feared being replaced by them if he did anything too bold. However, he informally agreed to all the terms in order to get the matter finished. When Le Capinos recovered, he was furious and tried to backpedal on the agreement. But the emperor warned his great-uncle that the Focads didn't want peace, as it would mean a loss of influence for them, and that if this dragged on, they would use it as a pretext to take power. Le Capinos agreed, and the treaty was signed. That's what Ibn Shahram tells us, anyway. Of course, we would expect that the report of an ambassador to his masters would be slanted in his favour. And we see this clearly from the fact that he outmaneuvers the Romans and gets them to cave in to every one of Baghdad's demands. The treaty would never be put into effect, so we don't know how much of that is true. It's also suspicious how honest the Romans are about their feelings. Would Bardas Focus have talked openly of his disagreement with his sovereign? Would Basil have admitted to his own impotence? Perhaps more likely, Shahram has written into his account the impression he got of each figure, or indeed the off-record comments of their subordinates rather than actual quotations. However, this account was for the benefit of the higher-ups in Baghdad, so we assume that his assessment of Byzantine politics is fairly accurate. That the Focads were content for military operations to continue, while the palace was far keener to get Sclerus out of Arab hands, in part so that he could be a counterweight to the Focads. This was the strange thing about the balance of power with a palace-bound regime. They needed some balance in the eastern armies. They couldn't afford for one family to become so dominant that they could march on the capital and replace the existing regime. The insight shown over Basil II's position is also particularly fascinating. Here he is trying to exert himself, and yet is entirely self-aware of how much power his uncle and his generals possess, and therefore how replaceable he is. 
particularly if you remember that he has a younger brother hanging around, a tailor-made substitute. An added layer of authenticity comes in the form of Shahram's escort during the negotiations. This was Nicephorus Oranos, keeper of the imperial inkstand. That was a high official in charge of important documents like government legislation. Oranos was the man who arranged the private meetings with Basil, and according to Ibn Shahram, he was the emperor's only senior ally at court. Over the coming decades, Oranos will be one of the few men that Basil will trust with genuine power, suggesting that Ibn Sharam's report contains plenty of truth, and possibly that Oranos himself was a source for much of this information. Another important takeaway is the seemingly good working relationship between Le Capinos and Leo Focus. The two men had known each other for decades. During Nicephorus's reign, they had worked together in the palace and had been side by side during negotiations with Liotprand of Cremona. It seems that as ever, Le Capinos knew how to work with the magnate families to keep the empire running. This harmony between the eunuch and the Focads was creating serious tension between Le Capinos and the emperor. Whose side was the eunuch really on? Here he is, presented as backing down to his great-nephew's wishes, but would that always be so? Again, we see the power of personal ties in Byzantine politics. Ibn Shahram tells us that Nicephorus Uranos hated Le Capinos, and this enmity is what enabled the emperor to trust that he was a true ally. And meanwhile, Le Capinos' ability to forge working relationships had kept him in power for decades. Despite working against them on multiple occasions, he was again at the side of the Focas family, perhaps using them as a threat to keep Basil subservient. Of course, we would be far more suspicious of our ambassador's report if it didn't accurately predict events to come. Next time, Basil will imprison and exile his great-uncle, and Bardas Focus will declare himself emperor. It will be all action as the Fatimids march on Aleppo, Basil marches on Bulgaria, and Bardas Kliros is released from captivity. And in case you somehow missed it, I posted an episode just before this one discussing the idea of me going to Istanbul. Please check out that brief podcast and do vote in the poll. It will take you no more than 10 seconds to let me know what you think of the idea and I would be hugely grateful. Thank you so much to all of you who have voted and written in so far. Any advice, suggestions and comments, welcome at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 